So we're going to continue in Acts. And uh, Acts Reenacted is our series that we've been going on. And because the book of Acts has not ended yet, we're still in it. And uh, we're in that time between Pentecost and the return of Christ. It hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't come back. We still have hope. So therefore, we're still in that church age that was started in Acts. So uh, we explored last week, we went to Paul's ministry in ancient Macedonia. And in particular, there were cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and um, Berea. And uh, this was a region Paul had previously been specifically called to in a vision. And uh, he was right in the middle of his very own personal ordained mission field. Now, we saw that it wasn't all champagne and chocolates, eh? We saw that there were some hassles and some different things. Um, we learned about three areas of, of ministry that Paul would need to make in his mission field. And those things are alive and well today, aren't they? You know, we have you know, those who need an intellectual form of ministry. You know, those who need to be ministered in that way. We've got some people who are ultimately uh, incredibly learned or different things like that. Or we have people who, are, who need clarity and, uh, you know, are pondering God at an intellectual level and trying to make sense of it all. You know, we've got others who, there's a psychological need. You know, some people come from a life of drugs or different things, or there's occult practices, or there's anxieties, or there's depression. There's different things that come up that, you know, that, that we've all gone through at different times. And sometimes we need ministry where, you know, where we need the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that guards our heart and mind, right? You know, so that's how that sort of works. Now, and then we had those who had a moral need. You know, someone who has a, a moral compass and it's costing them greatly in their life. And we know that people are making choices out there and it's costing them. You know, and they need the moral compass, the, the cross that Jesus provides. And uh, so there's three different areas of ministry that we can provide. And, and, um, but we also see that there were responses too. On one extreme, we've got the instant humility. What must I do to be saved? Thank you for making it clear. Let's jump in. Then you've got the violent hostility at the other end. Now, people who don't, want, who don't want a bar of this and make a very, very strong showing to make that point clear. But then in the middle, we have the people who like Bereans, noble people, civil people, who just need time to ponder over the information that we give them. And uh, that's the median response of our nation today. People just need time to go over the facts. It's not a fast... You know, not a fast evangelism. It's a patient evangelism that we need to do as a church today. And uh, so be prepared for it. They're being noble. They're giving you time. And if they're giving you time, give them respect to go over the information and be on hand with the information that they need as they come along. So now we're going to come into a really rich piece of text, one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible. Um, in fact, I would do a whole series on this just so I could actually get to this point. Funny, that. But uh, we're going to play this quick video clip first. This is a bit of inspiration. We'll get on to that in a minute. Acts 17. And we're going to start from verse 16 today. And uh, we're going to go through a bit of text, but I'll go chunk-sized to make it palatable for us today. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asks, what is this, what Babel are trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Let's stop there for a minute. Now, Athens was a free city, which had been taken over by the Romans in 146 BC. It had been the center of all things intellectual and cultural for about five centuries. And it was the birthplace of the Hellenistic culture that we spoke about earlier in the series. When we talked about Hellenized Jews, this is where the culture came from. 
and we, yeah, and that was promoted. That sort of way of life was promoted from Alexander the Great onwards, and 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 it was just something that they prided themselves on. And the Roman Empire really prided themselves on this cultured part. They considered themselves not savages because of their embracing of Athenian culture. It was at the time it was known for its uh, its mathematics, its art its philosophy, its literature, its science, the architecture, music and theatre, all those things were, were a big part of Athenian culture. It gave us Socrates, gave us Aristotle, gave us Plato, gave us Epicurus and others, all of whom who had contributed to the thinking and making up of the culture long before Christianity or even Judaism for that matter had a presence or a foothold in that city. It was the birthplace of our modern understanding of democracy and it was the home to one of the top three ancient universities of the world. The other two were Alexandria and Tarsus, where Paul came from. While Rome was the clear military superpower and governing force of that part of the world, Athens was the clear cultural power, the intellectual superpower of the world. Athens was also a highly idolatrous and superstitious city. At the time of Paul's visit, temples built centuries before stood strong and were frequented by everyone. An ancient Roman writer said that in Athens it was easier to find a god than a man because of the nature of the place. In the Parthenon, on the big top hill there, there was a, in, within that Parthenon stood, stood a gold and ivory statue of the goddess Athena, where they got the name Athens from. And throughout the city, there were images, there were statues, there were sites of worship, all dedicated to to Apollo, to Jupiter, to Venus, to Mercury, to Bacchus, to Neptune, Diana, Dionysus, loads of other gods all put in there. And all these things were built because of the cultural center by the best of the best of architects and sculptors and artists all around the place. This would have been a visually great thing to see. Gold, silver, marble, granite, all these things put together to make beautiful structures. Now, as Paul enters his city, what stands out to him is not the splendor of the city, but the misguided worship. There was a a huge depth and capacity for worship within the city. And there was a spiritual hunger and there was an openness found within there. It was great. But there was no truth in their objects of worship at all. We can see that it greatly troubled Paul here. And the word distress here was a very carefully chosen word. In the Septuagint, which was the Greek New Testament, which was, which was released to the Hellenized world. In that book, the Greek word, where it says that God was actually distressed. Or he, it says he was distressed when the Israelites made a golden calf. You know that story you know, in the wilderness? The same word there where, God said he, where it says that God was distressed is the exact same word that Luke is using to describe the response of Paul for Athens. In other words, there's a terrible amount of angst and deep regret and really heartfelt pain at what he is seeing in the uh, people of Athens there. But there's a glimmer of hope. They've got a synagogue and an altar, one with that name, you know, to the unknown God. He had a place to start with both Jews and Greeks in this city. And now Luke is now giving us his attention to the details of the people that he interacted with. So we've got this great city of Athens, and now we've got the people that are within it. Like normal, Paul starts with the synagogue. We've established already that Paul, in his evangelistic style, first looked for the people who would be the most familiar with his subject matter. And we read that he has an opportunity to reason for, for a bit of time in the synagogue of Athens. 
But then he does move on to, the, to speaking with the passers-by in what we call the Agora. This served as a market and a bit of a hub of activity for the everyday life of general, uh, you know, the general life of uh, the general public sort of thing. This would be your standard market trading there, but also served as a place where people went at their leisure. In the cities, we have Agora environments in the shopping centres there. You go there not just to purchase things, but to have a coffee and socialise and get on the internet and catch up with people. Now, that was you connected with people at these places. Any setting in your life that captures people at leisure with the freedom to talk about the views of the world can be your personal Agora space. You know, the park where the kids play and the parents are left to talk over coffee, that's an Agora. The craft markets are an Agora. The swap meet this morning in Wangaratta at 6am when it was still dark. I couldn't see the items I was trying to sell. That's an Agora. It's in your Agora moments that you encounter the philosophies of the street. And we read in our text here that Paul finds two standout philosophical views as he travels around and talks in the Agora of Athens. These two thinkings actually represent modern secular culture quite well as well. So we're going to go over them real quick. Epicurean philosophy was founded by Epicurus three centuries before Paul hit the scene. It looked at religious notions but concluded that the gods were so remote and removed that they did not take interest or intervene in mere human affairs anymore. Made it, skipped town. The world was made by the gods, but beyond that, all the things that occurred around us were simply a matter of chance. And because the gods were just so distant, they took no interest in our lifestyle choices or our future. This meant no judgment. And it meant that once we were dead, that was it. That was the end. So since there was no reason to worry about the eternal consequences, their philosophy was simple. Live your life in pursuit of personal, uh, personal indulgence, in personal pleasure. You have one life, and your personal pleasure is, you know, is all you're going to get. So live your life large. This morning I was listening to a song. One of the spokespeople of the youth culture today is this young girl named Kesha. And she's talking about a song and pretty much says, tonight I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to get into all sorts of strife. I'm going to hang with every guy I can find. I'm going to get absolutely smashed because I'm not caring too much about what the future is. The song's called Come On. It's a very interesting song to listen to. You know, but that's the way we think today. In this, you know, we have a very Epicurean mindset today in the world. Interestingly, it was Luke who caught hold of one of Jesus' parables that speaks into this thing. In Luke 12, Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty to get of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get, get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. The key saying of an Epicurean in Athens and Hellenized culture was eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus was actually speaking into a Hellenistic worldview and yet addressing Hebrews at the same time. This culture was creeping in whether the Hebraic people liked it or not. 
It's only when it got to religion that they ever decided to stick with this whole Hebraic thing. Anything else, Hellenism all the way. The Stoics acknowledge a supreme being, but refuse to define it. Instead, they embrace the doctrine of what we call pantheism. God is pretty much the cosmic whole. He's everything around us, including ourselves. This was different to Judeo-Christian thought in that it didn't separate God from creation. And because of this uh, reverence for everything being God, they taught that they must live in harmony with nature. They must live with restraint, integrity, goodwill, and even charity because they were essentially serving themselves and each other as gods. The outcome of that was actually a a lot of arrogance and self-righteousness that came out of that. People who took pride in their moral high ground. In today's thinking, Stoicism is not a movement, but it's certainly present around us, isn't it? There are certain people that you find, you know, who believe their moral standing and outward goodness are enough to be fine when this is life, when this life is done, regardless of how they respond to Christ. Interestingly, groups like Freemasonry are often regarded as a neo-Stoic group as well, because of their appearance of moral high ground and their vague acknowledgement of a supreme being. You know, the, the architect of the universe can be whatever you and your mind conjures up, as long as you believe in one. You know, that has shades of Stoic influence right there. That's a very interesting sort of uh, byline there. In Paul's time, these two philosophies were the most prevalent in the streets. If you weren't already devoted to something, then you would consider your religious thought through those philosophical issues. Today, the people in our Agora do the same. They will ponder God, but they might look at it through Epicurean eyes. And they'll ask, what's in it for me? What pleasure do I stand to gain or lose by my allegiance to Jesus Christ? Or they will look at it through stoic eyes. Am I willing to separate God from my personal created universe? Can I be humble enough to acknowledge my need of God by dropping my own deity and dropping my self-righteous facade? Let's keep reading. Pick up from verse 19 here. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are, very, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands if he indeed needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else, everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. 
he's given proof to this by, to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people who became followers of Paul and believed. Other among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. Also, a woman named Damaris and a number of others. The Areopagus was a council of great thinkers that presided over the, the philosophical, the educational and moral and religious matters of Athenian culture. The members of the council must have been a government minister in their time and they must be 60 years or over. It has no equal in today's world except for perhaps some of those large you know, G20 summits or something like that where you try to assemble the greatest minds you can find. I remember one about 10 years ago in Melbourne, we had one where Bill Gates was in town. And I remember that, that stopped the city in its tracks. That was huge. I remember actually being parked in Russell Street and watching as motor, like 20 motorbikes blocked off an entire thing and in a 22-seat bus with just Bill Gates in it, drove past. It's amazing how those things... That, that was a very big thing. That's about the closest thing I can conjure up in my mind about the idea of the Areopagus. Areopagus means hill of Ares. Ares, hill. Pagus meaning hill. And this council met up there northwest of the Acropolis in a place that was once a court of law. With Roman rule, those legal powers were greatly diminished at the time of the first century. It's in this Areopagus environment that he is able to speak into the philosophical mindset of the marketplace down the hill. And the gospel he preaches here has some very interesting twists and turns. He first starts by commending their inquisitive and religious ways. He notes all their objects of worship and he notes that they are a people that habitually look for new ways of looking, uh, you know, of, of thinking and looking and worshipping. How many realise it's actually better to have a seeker than a closed book? If you're witnessing to somebody, if they're a closed book, you've got no hope. But if they're a seeker, even on any other religious stance, that's a good way to start, be able to bring the issue of religion and Christianity into that, right? This was a progressive people that just needed to be set straight. And Paul's not dumb with the window of opportunity he has here. There's no placards in this statement going, you're all going to hell with your idols. No. He actually just goes, he sees the heart behind their seeking. He goes, wow, my heart is broken for you. Let me help you with the truth here. Amid their religiosity, there's an altar, which we've read about here, dedicated to an unknown God. This was, in fact, a common thing in ancient literature sites, altars of a similar nature being found all around parts of that world. It's amazing that even in a place where gods were plentiful, there were still people out there that were not quite convinced. Or they were covering themselves in case well, the one they chose didn't turn out right. It's like the most devout atheists out there putting a cross around their neck just in case. With all idolatry... And it's alive and well today. There's loads of things that we put ahead of God. There always seems to be a thing within us that wonders if there's more. This altar has given Paul a great place to start in his witness and answer to the Stoics and Epicureans. And let's dissect that real quick. Let's have a look at see how his conversation, his sermon goes down. He starts with this easy statement. God made heaven and earth. Got a little bit of a tally there about how things stack up here. The Epicureans are switched on. Yes, he did. Yes, God made the heavens and the earth. The Stoics are kind of okay with it too. He, it, they, maybe a she, whatever you want to call it, 
Yeah, we can see a bit of influence of creationism there. Okay, we'll start with that. That's cool. He then goes on saying this. God doesn't live in temples made by hand. That's the next one. Again, an amen from the Epicureans here. To them, the gods made everything. But then he took off. Why have temples anymore when the gods aren't close enough to even receive worship anyway? Next point, nor is he served by human hands and doesn't need anything. He gives life and breath to everyone. And at this, the Stoics said, Amen. There was a supernatural life force of some sort out there, which in turn was within everyone and everything. From one man he made the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their hands. Amen from the Stoics. They were good with that because they saw the spiritual connection of all men. From one man, we all became spiritual. Excellent. And right at that point, we see the state of the world around us. We've got Epicurean minds out there. We've got Stoic minds. All the people out there in our agoras and mission fields. You know what? Some of the stuff that they think and ponder in their life, there's actually elements of truth in that. There's actually elements of right thinking within, within what they're coming across. The idea is to capture what is right in their thinking. When we engage with people, see what's right. Don't go hammering what's wrong. You won't get very far that way. If we start by addressing the validity of their thinking without getting them offside by aggressively shooting them down, we find that we have a pathway to, be, to bring truth to the situation. And that's what Paul does with these next statements here. He acknowledges the truth of their stuff. Now he starts turning it around. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps even reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. In other words, you Epicureans who think God is a distant, the gods are distant and disinterested, God is close. He's interested in us and through Jesus has a vested interest in redeeming us. You Stoics, he's not in you the way you think. But he can be if you reach out to him. In your sinful state, God remains an external person. And faith changes that. He then goes on to say this, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now what Old Testament verse is Paul quoting there? 600 BC, anyone hazard a guess what what sort of prophet he might be quoting there? That's about the antiquity. None. He's actually quoting Athenian pop culture to illustrate his point here. Like the crowd in Lystra, this crowd in front of him was 100% pagan. Completely unfamiliar with ancient Hebrew text. In fact, the sophisticated Greeks would have considered quite, you know, you know, considered the Hebrew text quite irrelevant and primitive. So he uses the things they were familiar with to make his point. In the world today, people who are unfamiliar with our supposedly primitive Bible, you know, sometimes we have a better chance of quoting scenes from Star Wars at worst than Narnia at best to make our point. You know, Narnia, Aslan, C.S. Lewis was onto something. He was deliberately making a point there. 
Paul starts by quoting the poet Epimendes, Epimenides, who lived in 600 BC, and he wrote this statement we, you know, concerning Zeus. In you we live and move and have our being. From that, he's able to communicate that they already had an understanding of a God who was the originator of life. The concept was right. But now Paul could bring the right doctrine into their established understanding. The same way he found the Jews in the synagogues who had an established understanding, he came in with the pagans as well and did the same thing. The second quote was from a Stoic author named Aratus, who actually came from Paul's home ground. And he wrote it in about 300 BC. Paul is saying here, yes, there is the possibility to become sons and daughters of God and therefore his offspring. But you're not there yet. You enter true sonship and become an heir with Christ through faith in Christ alone. Then he brings it back to Jesus. Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like God's or God, or gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. We're the, we're the children, not the father. We are the created, not the creator. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. If we are living beings and you already have this idea that we are the offspring of the gods and carriers of all their wisdom and creativity, why do you relegate your gods to an inanimate and man-made thing like your statues? In your idolatry, you are actually defying the logic you pretend to have. Instead, you are demonstrating just how limited your understanding of God actually is. And that puts you in a state of, and I say this with all respect to your Athenian intellectualism here, people in the Arapagus, this is what Paul's saying, ignorance. In the end, that sums up even the wisest minds outside of Christ. Ignorant of the magnitude of God. Ignorant of his holiness, of his love of his proximity and also of the judgment that awaits it's this ignorance that we need to gently and wisely and culturally sensitively bring the people of the agora to to understand their ignorance and be able to do something about it and from there we then show them the way of repentance before it's too late as Paul says in his final statement here for he has set a day and he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this by, to everyone by raising him from the dead. You can continue in ignorance, although now that you've been told you really can't call you that anymore, or you can repent. You Epicureans, there is in fact a life after this one and God himself will require that we give an account. It isn't eat, drink, and be merry. It's live your life with purpose, knowing that the end will come and we have to give an account. You Stoics, there is a very definite God of all creation, one that isn't a vague entity, one who is above us and separate from us, and we will stand before him one day. And only the truly righteous will stand that day. Repent, therefore, place your faith in Christ alone, be made righteous through him, and walk in confidence from this day forth. I'm going to wrap it up about there, but I'm going to conclude with a couple of quick thoughts here as we go. A couple of quick things. The first one is simple. The gospel is power enough to reinvent an entire culture. 
As we ponder this text, we see this. It has been said that there are seven pillars of a modern culture today. There's family, there's religion, there's business, education, government, arts and media. All the way from Antioch to Athens, we've seen that Paul has now been given space to speak into every one of those cultural pillars and see great things happen. In certain theological circles, we call this the cultural mandate of the church. And that mandate to reach every pillar of the community and culture remains alive and well today. We as a church will receive many opportunities to do that. It's my prayer that we will, as a church, be collectively embrace the opportunities that come. In the last 12 months, we've had a voice in, in families, of course, and of course in religion. Okay, We're talking about religious matters here today. We've also had a voice in education, in the arts, in the jazz festival and in different things, and even dabbling with online media. Five out of seven pillars came out of our church programs. And then collectively, we have seen others have influence in business and others with local government and other stuff as well. This is a church that can have an effective voice across the entire cultural makeup of our city. Like Paul had with the Areopagus. We have our Areopagus to speak into. What part will we play together? What part will you play in, in doing that and having a voice? Some of us have families to reach. Some of us have a voice in the business world, the Chamber of Commerce or different things. Some of us are in schools. Some of us have online experience and different things. We're reaching the media. We have opportunities to do these things. We see that Paul had a great effect here. In verse 34, we read that a few people became followers of Christ. Only a few, but no less potent here. We had a lady named Damaris, but also Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus. He convinced someone at the cultural level. Paul had gotten through to one of the toughest intellectual minds in his time, through the simplicity of the gospel and a wise delivery. Don't be afraid to share what you have in your heart, even as simple as it is in your Agora settings. Did Paul make a difference? Yes, and probably bigger than he anticipated. What will our witness do in our culture? And finally, we've got the depth of Paul's motivation here. A major Anglican theologian named John Stott wrote this. He passed away only two years ago. Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on? And that so many Christians are deaf and dumb, deaf to Christ's commission and tongue-tied in testimony. I think the major reason is this. We do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. We've never had a sense of indignation, which he had. Divine jealousy is not stirred within us. We constantly pray, hallowed be your name, but we do not seem to mean it. Or to care that his name is so widely profaned. And why is this? If we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul, it is because we do not see like Paul. Let me come back to that video clip. Children, Western children, with loads of information at their fingertips, not knowing who Jesus was when he was right in front of them. Holding up a card, I don't know that image. Hold up the other one, that's Ronald McDonald. Ronald McDonald is a bigger name in the vocabulary of children than Jesus Christ is. When I get face-to-face -face with kids here in Wangaratta, that ignorance is abundantly clear. That also means there are parents out there 
who have never taught their kids because they probably don't know either. Maybe some grandparents too. Right side, right outside our walls are altars erected everywhere to the unknown God. You might be out there, but I've got no clue who you are and what you're about. We here in church get caught up in our styles and go on about things that make us happy and comfortable in church. But sometimes it's easy to forget the world around us that is floundering in ignorance, starting with children, but for all generations. What are we going to do about that?